This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, one of the biggest victims of this new age of information and uh, technology is going to be the relationship, right? And as a relationship coach, uh, I do believe it's something we need to pay close attention to. So it will be today's topic of the Coach's Corner. How do we how do we close the closeness gap? Many people are struggling um, feeling close to another person. They, they, they feel lonely personally and, uh, you know, interpersonally, they feel like they just aren't close to their partner, to their kids. Um, it's hard when everyone's sitting looking at their phones and no one's connecting and talking, you might start to feel like you don't matter, that you are irrelevant. And um, there's it is a plague, quite honestly, and, and yet it's something that we, we can fix. But like our good guest Andrew Merle was just saying, you might need to make some choices, like the choice to put the phone away. And that's that's easier said, and I say it, and every time I say it, I notice that I, I still have a hard time putting my phone away because the phone makes it so I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to talk to anybody. I'm tired. Just once I pull it out, everyone kind of leaves me alone. But some of that then fosters this sense of loneliness. And uh, one of the things, there's a great book out there that I would highly recommend um, uh, called Stop Being Lonely. And it's um, uh, the Kira, Kira somebody. Let me find, look up her name. But it's in the book. Um, one of the ideas behind the concept of stop being lonely is what we really need to do is start to feel more um, more of an ability to get to understand the people around us. We really have to kind of step in and get uh, to understand who we are married to, who we are living with. Uh, Kira Asatryan is the author of the book, Stop Being Lonely, Three Simple Steps to Developing Close Relationships and Deep, or Close Friendships and Deep Relationships. But one of the interesting things she teaches is uh, don't just assume you understand the person you're with. And I did this yesterday with a, with a couple where I had them identify on a list of positive traits and negative traits, um, what are their top, you know, eight you know, positive ways that they see themselves and what are some of the negative ways they see themselves that, that they in their in their head, in their heart of hearts, they really they feel this way. Uh, they they and and basically this couple had been arguing about a situation and um, we did this activity and then I had them turn to each other and talk about what they found. One person's uh, one of his top traits was loyalty. Another person's top trait, the female's top trait was um, just just uh, com- compassion and, um, you know, and, and just a sense of compassion for others. And what ends up happening is uh, the, the male's negative trait was stubbornness and the female's negative trait was confusion. So what ends up happening in their relationship is a lot of times the, the wife is compassionately serving her children while the husband is lonely and loyal and wondering why she isn't more loyal to him. And then they fight. And what was amazing is, is I had them start identifying how they both see themselves and how their partner sees themselves. It changes the entire discussion. 
he's not being stubborn because he hates her. He's being stubborn because that's just his weakness. And she doesn't get confused about not loving him or loving the kids. I mean, that confusion is not coming because she doesn't love him. It's coming because she's so compassionate. She's going to always take care of the one that's in the need. Well, then he has to create a need for her to be able to be compassionate. The power of if you want to be um, more connected to others is you've got to understand where they're coming from, from their frame of reference. If they're trying to do something and they want loyalty, you need to understand that. If they want more compassion, you need to understand that. Understanding somebody is the antidote to creating a closer relationship. So a little challenge for you. Put down the phones. Go try to understand each other. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Politics. We talk about it all the time. We spent the whole first hour of the show, if you missed it, reviewing uh, the Super Saturday and, you know, all the latest and greatest. But one of the things that I run into, because I have six children, and I'm trying to raise them in a healthy world, right? But my kids are all uh, from years of 10 years of age up to 22. And they're getting into this political race, every one of them. Uh, the other night we were watching one of the debates and every one of my kids from 10 up had questions about what's going on. And they say they're talking about it in school. So they're bringing up the debates in their school. And it dawned on me that um, I probably need to be teaching my kids more about politics and about how this process works So I put together some points about how to raise positive people instead of powerful politicians. I also realized that uh, there's probably no more political environment that exists than in the halls of a junior high school where it's, you know, the jocks versus the geeks versus the whatever, surfers, whatever you've got, The, the, the boarders, whatever you call them the skaters. It's political. It's a crazy political world. And so here are three very basic lessons um, uh, that I try to teach my kids from what we're seeing in a debate, for example, and real life situations that they can go use in their own world. Number one, actions speak louder than words, right? Let our actions do the talking, not our words. You'll notice some politicians can get up there and just talk about their, their results, um, because they they have results, or any of the candidates do. They talk about what they've done in their life that shows that they're a trustworthy candidate. Uh, some people, though, also try to use their words to cover up their past. Gandhi had a great quote that said, you can't talk your way out of something you behaved your way into. So if if you've had bad behavior in the past, try to talk all you want about it. It doesn't go away by you talking. It goes away by getting results. So positive people trust that their past is going to do the talking for them. They might need to you know, share their past, but they don't need to exaggerate. They don't need to name call. They don't need to make stuff up about others, which we see going on in this political debate. We, we, we don't have to be full of anger and name calling in order to get and be seen. We also – you'll notice when people are starting to up the rhetoric, when they're starting to become more aggressive, when they speak louder, when their speech is faster, they're probably trying to distract you. They're getting hijacked, I call it, and they're distracting you from the real issue. So notice it. 
And I talk to my kids about it. A, a, a leader does this. A leader speaks this way. A leader doesn't talk about other people. They talk about their results. They talk about their goals. They don't have to tear down someone else's position. They can focus on their position instead of being calculated and, you know, name-calling. And we've talked about it on the show. In this last election, we've heard about people's hands, hair, spray tan, sweatiness, their tone, all of it. Another rule is value people more than popularity and power. If you want to be an influential leader, then value people. Don't just value being popular. A healthy, positive person sees the inherent worth of everybody. They don't just see people as a voting block. They don't, know, they don't even try to break people into their groups. They try to see that all people are whole. They're all, they all have physical, social, emotional, spiritual needs. Our politicians break us into social groups by color, by race, or by, by gender, by, um, by how much income we make. We, we aren't just a bunch of groups. I'm more than my ethnicity. I'm more than my religion. I'm more than my gender. I'm a whole person. So see people as a whole. And also don't see people as just a means to your end. How many times do you feel like these politicians are taking you for granted because you're a means to them getting elected? And I think some of the anger we see in the country is the mere fact that we, we nominate you, we elect you, but we don't end up getting taken care of. And I think that's why so many people are sick and tired of politics. People value the people. Value them for just being a fellow traveler on this earth, not somebody that's going to make you more popular. That, this goes on in high school too. Whether you're a jock or a cheerleader or a skater or whatever, you've got to just learn to like people instead of using people to get what you want. Last rule I try to teach my kids is the confidence is going to always come from the inside out, not the outside in. That's exactly the opposite of what we see most of our politicians you know, exhibiting. Their confidence comes from their last poll. How many times do the polls get brought up in this process? The person that is talking the most about the polls probably is the most insecure person. The poll is not the key, right? At some point, I need to get my confidence from the inside. Positive, healthy people get their confidence from knowing who they are, knowing what they believe in, having a belief system that they're living. Their confidence comes from being a good person, who believes in certain principles and lives certain principles. And they'll stand by their principles even if they don't win the election, even if they're not seen as popular. And that changes them on the inside. When we look at the politicians that are constantly shifting and changing, we worry about them. I also, by the way, worry about politicians that can't collaborate. You can still try to understand someone else's needs and live your principles. And find some meeting place in the middle, something our, I think our, our politicians are struggling with. This isn't about polls. This isn't about popularity. But I know it is for a 14-year-old kid that wants to be popular with his peer group and might end up doing stupid things in order to get elected or in order to be brought into that peer group. What I'm afraid of, though, is we're seeing the same thing in our political world. Very basic stuff, Right. Confidence comes from the inside out, not the outside in. Value people more than popularity, and actions speak louder than words. Oh, if I can teach it to my uh, my twelve year old, my fifteen year old, we could probably teach it to our politicians. Wouldn't that be great? 
You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as a child, you may have known exactly what you wanted to be when you grew up. Options range from a firefighter to a doctor to a professional baseball player or an artist. Then you hit college and real life settles in. You eventually choose a career. But how confident were you in your career choice? With statistics indicating that only 27% of college graduates get a job related to their major It's easy to be uncertain, and uh, our guest today, Dr. Jonathan Schultz, who recently conducted a study looking at overconfidence in career choice, he joins us now to talk to us about the impact our uh, confidence can actually have on our future earnings and our future career. Dr. Jonathan Schultz, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. You bet. Great to have you on the show. Talk to us. So how did you get into studying confidence in relation to careers? Well, actually, I remember a very specific event when I was uh, doing my PhD in the very first week. I overheard a conversation of two first-year undergraduates, and they were talking about their starting salaries. Hmm. And now they were talking about really, really high salaries, and I was just baffled by hearing that. And I was thinking, man, they really must be confident in, um, in themselves and in their choice particular because it was first-year undergraduates, so they had no information how good they will be doing. And, um, of course, they also had no information um, whether they will like um, the subject they're studying. Interesting. And, and I guess in your study, what did you find out about this confidence level? It, does it make a big difference? Does it impact? Yeah, we found a huge difference between the field of studies. So we found that um, people studying um, disciplines which are related to business schools like economics, uh, business administration, law, or political science, that they score way higher on confidence than other academic disciplines, um, for example, natural science or um, hmm. chem- and I mean, on the least confident were actually humanities. Uh, they were scoring quite low. Now. What, why? What is that from, Dr. Schultz? What, what do you attribute? Does the confidence create the choice, or does the choice you know, generate the confidence? I, I think that it's really the confidence which creates the choice. Interesting. The, the confidence, what we measure, is confidence in own abilities. And uh, abilities we measured is, was uh, simple trivia quizzes. So we asked them... Um, for example, do you remember the year that Elvis Presley was born? Or do you know the year the first flight of the Concorde Accord? No. And, <laughs> and these are really simple questions, and all the students did equally well. And, uh, but they ranked themselves quite differently when it comes to ability. And since we did the study with first-year uh, students, um, it's, and they were not exposed very much to their major. It seems that it was really selection going on. So people huh. who are quite confident in their ability, they uh, choose to go for the uh, field of studies uh, which are related to business. I mean, these are also the fields of study which will pay later way higher amounts than 
other fields of studies like humanities. Hmm. And and I guess, too, there's also higher risk in business than there might be maybe in the sciences. I mean, it seems like a science uh, employment in the sciences might be a safer bet than an entrepreneur in a business. Well, it kind of depends, I guess. I mean, if you if you start, if you want to become an entrepreneur, yes, it's more risky. And you need this confidence also to succeed as an entrepreneur. Hmm. There's right. lots of risk, so you need to be really confident in what you're doing. And of course, if you want to sell products and you want to start your own business in a market, you need to be confident in order to convince other people uh, that what you're doing is really good. That's but of interesting. Course, if yeah. you're working in a bank, I think your employment should be uh, quite uh, certain. Certain is quite secure, right? Exactly. And do you um, – so, wow, this is some pretty interesting research because now – uh, all of a sudden, it might make more sense why some people in the humanities are in the humanities. Um, it, it just might. I mean, maybe. It, what do you What do you think needs to come out of this? Do we Do we need to be teaching confidence to kids in every area now to elevate them to certain levels of confidence? What What do you What do you suggest or see that uh, that's going to come out of the research? I think that's exactly. I mean, that's a very good point. I think it's very important to teach kids confidence already in high school so that they feel confident to really make a choice based more on their ability and interest than in their confidence. Hmm. Because, I mean, in the end, we want to have people who are enjoying what they're doing on the one hand and also the people who are really able to do the things um, they, they want to do later in life. And I mean, one thing which I did not mention yet is that and there's a large literature showing that there's huge different gender differences between uh, confidence. Mm. So males score way higher on confidence than females and of course this can explain why males select themselves into competitive environments and also get promoted more often and um, are more likely to be CEOs of companies. That's true too and um, I wonder too if that's the uh, I, I, did you check out? Is there in your sample size was there a disparity in were more females in the humanities and more males in the business areas? Exactly. I mean that's what we find. Yeah. We look at the entries uh, in in colleges um, in Europe, but I'm certain that it's very similar here in in the U.S. That more females select themselves into humanities while uh, the business careers. But also, often natural science are more the fields that uh, males mm. select themselves. Right. In fact, yeah. In fact, I just read another article about how it's a little harder to recruit uh, women into like the medical fields or the science fields uh, historically. Hmm. Exactly. I think confidence has yeah is, is a very um, strong predictor of uh, factor explaining these differences. It's a really interesting concept, right? Because now. Their confidence is impacting their selection, and their selection will inevitably impact their income. Exactly. Yeah. And and then they can they're they're elevated, I guess, or held or held back by it. What are there some cons to the overconfidence? Did you find any cons that uh, for people that were overconfident? Well, in in the economics literature, there's many phenomena which are um, explained by overconfidence, and they're actually phenomena which are um, can be quite bad for society. I mean, one is, for example, value-destroying mergers. If you're a CEO and 
you think, well, I'm, I'm the best uh, CEO ever. Um, I should take over all the other companies. And this is only driven by overconfidence. Obviously, value is destroyed. Or another example is excess entry into markets. So if you're an entrepreneur and you think um, you do it, you're way better than your competitors, you might enter into a market and actually go bankrupt. So there's this, uh, yeah, there, there are strong phenomena which are uh, where confidence on an aggregate level is actually not very good. Hmm. It's, I'll, I'll go ahead. Actually, I'm, I'm quite puzzled with overconfidence because if you think about this, people base their decisions on wrong presumptions. So you can think of um, just crossing the street, and if you think I'm super fast, you might cross the street, but the car was faster, and, and there's, a, there's a chance that you, you get into an accident. Hmm. Also, if you think about our evolutionary past, um, if you're very confident, you might think I can take on this bear all by myself, but actually, I mean, there's a high risk of getting killed in this proceed. So I'm quite interested why people are overconfident in the first place, I think it is a social signaling device. So I can signal that I'm very confident and people will follow me or people won't pick um, uh, a fight with me. I think that's, and that's obviously a trade-off. If you're a politician, it's very important to signal confidence. But of course, if you overdo it, and then it's not credible anymore. People will not follow you or not. Yeah, and then they yeah they won't trust you, and, and and that's a weird concept too because that that's then you always hear on campuses well there's those that do those are the business people politicians and then there's those that don't do but they teach, and yeah. you hear this weird uh, so it's there's a lot of just kind of um, rhetoric that's also surrounds this in our own society. Yeah, I mean confidence also has a advantage, and this is that you start projects um, because you feel confident. So it might be that you actually start very ambitious projects because of your confidence, which may be way too ambitious, but once you're stuck in this project, you might continue because you're stuck in this project. So it might help you to overcome um, some procrastination. And of course, um, if you're more confident, if you're in the humanities and you seem not to be so confident, you might not uh, be so ambitious in your later career as well, uh, driven by this confidence. Hmm. Interesting. Let's uh, take a break. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Jonathan Schultz, who um, has been doing an, an extensive study on the origins of overconfidence. He also um, is here today to present uh, some of his findings to us about how your confidence in your career choice impacts the very choice you make. And uh, interesting stuff. Uh, the business majors, the politicians, those in political science, law, economics, they tend to be more confident than maybe the teachers, the therapists, the social scientists. Uh, interesting, interesting insight. We'll take a break, folks. We'll come right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you understand a little bit more about confidence and its impact on your uh, career. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Get a good feeling, yeah. Oh, sometimes. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today uh, on the phone with us is Dr. Jonathan Schultz. He is a research associate of the Social Cognitive Development Lab and Human Cooperation Lab at Yale University. He also is the co-author of the study on the origins of overconfidence. Today he's been talking to us about uh, how your confidence helps you determine which career to choose. Those that uh, are more confident tend to choose a career in the fields of um, political science, law, economics, business administration, while those uh, kind of with uh, the lowest levels of confidence tend to um, choose a career more in the humanities. And then somewhere in between, the sciences. Anyway, interesting research. And Dr. Jonathan Schultz, thanks again for being with us. Yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And you're saying this confidence we're kind of bringing to the game, and this confidence is our, our confidence in our abilities. So those that have a higher confidence in their abilities are more likely to choose the business, the poli-sci kind of world, um, economics. Those that have a little lower level of confidence are more likely to choose a career in the humanities. And then I guess there's a direct correlation to incomes earned. Yeah, there's a very direct correlation. So if you're, um, so we had a Swiss sample, and there the difference between the business school related fields and um, engineering and medicine and the other fields, uh, it's about ten thousand dollars for the starting salary, but later I guess it will um, disperse more. Ten thousand dollars more for the yes. businesses over the sciences. Exactly. And then that that'll get oh, turn into a wider gap over time. Exactly. Wow. I mean, and it's and it's confidence. Um, I guess where in your in your project on the origins of overconfidence. I mean, I guess is that overconfidence? Um, it seems like if it's overconfidence, it would be detrimental to the effect to their success. Right. Um, so it's really. Well, Overconfidence would having be having too much confidence when you shouldn't. Exactly. So the way we set up our experiment was that we did these trivia quizzes and then we ranked people how good they were in answering these trivia quizzes. And in the second stage, we asked people to rank themselves in groups of in a group of twelve how good they would be. Hmm. And what we find is that people from the business school are consistently ranking themselves better than they are. So on average, they rank themselves one rank higher. Hmm. And we call this overconfidence. Interesting. Okay. They get money from us. So if if, yeah. they, if they would be exactly right, they would get the most money. So they have a financial incentive to be correct. Yeah. Did and Somehow reassuring is that engineering and medicine, they're actually quite good on average in predicting how good they are. And actually that's reassuring because engineering and uh, natural science, medicine, um, these are people who, who, um, who design nuclear power plants and so on. So it's reassuring that they mm. have a sense of how good they are in relation to that. And then the humanities, do they underrate how good they are? Exactly. So on average, they underrate themselves by about one rank. So they think that they're actually worse than, than they are. How interesting is that? And yet these people might also be the therapists of the world, the counselors, the, oh, yeah. the school teachers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think it's very important to already start in school um, to uh, boost people's confidence. Um, 
But on the other hand, there are studies showing that um, confidence is uh, largely uh, genetically inherited, so about uh, 20 to 30 percent, and only 10 percent comes by the uh, environment. Hmm. A large proportion of uh, genetic inheritance. And then um, I guess, too, we need to boost confidence, but we also need to, it sounds like, with some of the uh, higher echelon, we probably need to improve self-awareness. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a very yeah, fragile balance. On the one hand, of course, if you have people working in, in the business, you want to have confident people uh, to boost your business, to, to sell products to people, and their confidence is certainly uh, a trade which helps that. But at the same time, uh, you don't want to destroy value in a society by, by having, let's say, a banking industry which is way too confident, going into too risky businesses, um, yeah, leading to bankruptcies. And, um, yeah, right. Because that was it. I mean, like with the economic collapse, everybody was following the leader who was confidently leading or met multiple leaders confidently leading and confidently making money, but nobody should have been that confident. Exactly. So some cautions in, in one's own ability in investing would have been uh, quite helpful there. Well, and maybe too, because um, maybe some of the scientists that were maybe less confident, and I don't, I don't know, uh, I read in the book um, Quiet, mm-hmm. um, they talk about uh, – extroversion, introversion, but um, the extrovert might have been the manager pushing more and more financial whatever decisions. But, you know, a researcher behind the scenes that was introverted may have not been strong enough to go take on the confidence of the manager to give him enough data to say, no, this isn't working. I mean, that's one of the points she brings up in her book is at some point you need to have you know, the quieter, less confidence that might have better data stand up and deliver. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And actually, extroversion and confidence, they're uh, quite correlated. So hmm. people who are more extroverted, they're also more confident. Isn't that interesting? And then she, in her book, too, uh, talks about the fact that Harvard Business School, for example, is basically their requirements to get in is much more of an extroverted scale and cycle. So they're much more inclined to just bring extroverts in. So they're not just getting overconfidence. They're getting overconfident and extroverted. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. And, I mean, who would you hire? Someone who is very shy in the, the initial interview or is it someone right. who is very confident about his ability because um, there's asymmetric information. You don't know the, the person you're going to hire. So you want to hire the one who signals more confidence in what he's doing. So even so, he might not be so good. It still uh, probably makes sense from the point of view of the firm to hire the one who signals high quality. Yeah, and we kind of have a bias towards that, I guess, right? So we're biased to trust the more confident person even if they're less competent. Exactly, and what makes it um, also very interesting is that Imagine a very confident person. He signals confidence, then he gets hired. That's boosting his confidence. Then he might uh, go into a, some form of competition in for market shares. And just by his very confident presence, he might deter the other uh, person. And what we actually find in our own research is that deterring someone uh, from competition by signaling confidence 
people update this in the exactly same way as actually winning this competition. Hmm. So there's a value and confidence to t deter other people from picking competitions, and this boosts confidence even more. So it seems like there's some form of an adaptive path boosting confidence. And, and uh, yeah, that's interesting too because there's still a hierarchy of confidence, I guess, on any team. Uh, you, you're still going to have some people that are have even more confidence than you um, on the same team. Yeah. And then you might back down because they seemingly have so much more confidence. Exactly. I mean, in these situations we encounter in, in many instances, it could just be a conference and should I speak up now? Am I confident enough? Uh, or do, uh, am I going to be quiet and mm. let the person speak? And of course, all these little things might build up to form a very confident character who has uh, spoken up many times and he got uh, positive feedback, or build someone who is who's rather shy, not speaking up, and then also not being able to boost confidence. So I think one way to, to boost confidence is really try to uh, speak up in, and also in situations where the the, um, the feedback will likely be very positive. Yeah. So find yeah find a kind of a, a safer environment and and speak up a lot there. Practice exactly. there. Exactly. Because you really this is this does get into like whistleblower situations and why some people won't you know even step into situations where people need help because confidence might be low. Exactly. Yeah. And that's uh, that would be very disastrous. Oh. What a fascinating study, and um, the, and the, this is all really you're saying much more of a genetic thing handed down. Is it evolutionary? I mean, it seems like we would have been born to even fake confidence. I mean, it seems like even a lot of animals that are outnumbered might still continue to pretend to look confident. Yeah, I think it's a very good question. We we don't know yet. I mean, we. We found uh, in this one study found that genetics is a large part of it, and the question then becomes: overconfidence is a form of self-deception um, because I can just play to be confident. But what we find in in our studies is that people are truly overconfident. So even if we give them money, they still uh, don't get the, the correct choice, so they mm -hmm. display overconfidence. And I think. The self-deception is a very important part because if you truly believe that you're very good, your body language, your voice, and everything signals that you're confident in what you're doing, and this is way more so when you truly believe um, deep inside that you're really good in, in something or that you have a high ability in doing something. Yeah. Wow. It's, and I think it's related to the animal world in some sense if you have... Um, yeah, costly, yes, theories of costly signaling so, uh, or, or mating so people, uh, animals display these um, like birds uh, display colorful um, um, yeah like plumage yeah exactly Just, uh, and I think it's very much related to, to overconfidence does, does, does this confidence change as we age does our wisdom temper our confidence? Do we, do, do we become wiser, smarter? I really like this question, but I, I don't have an answer. It's really interesting. I should look into that. Yeah, that seems fascinating. Like, it seems like you'd become wiser and realize that sometimes it's better to not just 
be confident. It's sometimes yeah. it's better to be right. To be real, exactly realistic, and uh, well, it could be also be that yeah. I mean, it makes sense also when you're younger. You might want to have high confidence to try out new things, to take risks you would not take without mm-hmm. being quite confident. And then um, to start a career, to start um, a new business. But once you're older, you might be not so wise to start risky businesses. And uh, Yeah, now you got to conserve. Exactly. Which is maybe, yeah, maybe why we become conservative versus more yeah. liberal-minded. As we age, interesting stuff. Well, I appreciate the work. It's a it's a fascinating study, um, and if going forward and in, in your future, Jonathan, what uh, what's what do you think is next? Where are you going to take the study now? Yeah, I'm really interested in these evolutionary origins, in whether there's a genetic base, um, how self deception and overconfidence relates, and how you can uh, whether this is a social signal deterring other people or. Um, taking other people along as a leader and mm. probably do more research. Love that. Great stuff. Well, again, thank you very much, Dr. Jonathan Schultz, for your great work. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Interesting stuff about confidence. Isn't that amazing? Who to thunk it? It's just kind of who you are. Even impacts who you, what jobs you choose and how much money you're going to make. Um, and who would have thought that it was based on your field? You choose your field on your confidence level. Amazing stuff. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, a little coach's corner for you here. When we um, talk about confidence, as we did with Dr. Jonathan Schultz, um, a lot of it, like he's saying, very little of it, about 10% he was saying is going to come from uh, you, you, you know your culture and your maybe your uh, parenting. Some confidence. The majority, he would say, ninety percent. I think he even said is genetics. It's some people are just genetically strong, and they're strong and confident, and not afraid to take a risk, not afraid to uh, to take something on. And one, in fact, uh, there also are very strong correlations. Between, for example, a young man or a young woman and what her father does for a living will uh, is the number one indicator of what that child will probably be able to go do in a, with a living. One reason might be now that I've heard this is because that's their confidence level. If there's somebody that just knows how to go out and do and make something happen and they're confident to risk and to try, um, man, they might go risk and try. At a level that that others aren't. Have you ever sat back and just wondered, man, how does that guy just keep making money? He's just so good at making money. Well, that's I'm not great at making money, but I watch a lot of people that are, and I think, wow. But I also notice they do stuff that I don't do. Right? They risk. They invest. They just keep at it. They're tenacious. They keep trying. They keep doing different things. They keep learning. So let's... Let's maybe start looking at ourselves because I'm a big believer that if I could change my own uh, confidence by rethinking things, by gathering a little bit uh, more competency along the way, as Dr. Schultz was talking about, a lot of people have high confidence, but that doesn't mean they're competent. 
So some things that we might want to also be doing with the people around us and with ourselves, let's make sure that we're not just looking at outcomes like money per se, but we're also looking about at a person's worth, that we still validate the worth of every person. That should boost some confidence there. We could also encourage people by understanding what they're about, by actually listening more to the people around us. That could be a great way to encourage your own employees, your own clients to step up their game. And, and you could it's incredibly encouraging to have a boss that will listen to you, for example. Shine a light on your strengths. Um, one thing that I found gave me the most confidence is knowing what I'm really good at. And when I know what I'm really good at and I work on what I'm good at and I improve what I do well, amazing things happen to my confidence. I dare just stand up and speak uh, on a minute's notice and I'm not afraid to do that. And another thing that might help I think a lot of us is to make sure we're noticing that the progress is being made. Pay attention to the stuff that's actually happening that's being – that is your progress. See your progress. Don't just look at the goals. Start noticing your progress and stay present. Man, many of us are so lacking confidence because our head's never in the game right now. We're always worried about yesterday or too confused about tomorrow. We don't know which way to turn. That's going to impact your confidence as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Everybody has some reason to be a little messed up, right? We got our parents to blame. You know, we've got people in our world around us to blame. We have, you know, somebody in our childhood that hurt us or harmed us. So then you look at these foster care kids who really don't have any control. They, they, it's not like they can just be positive and think their way out of this. They have a hole that they're digging and they need to get out of it. And sometimes they just need you. So seriously, Go evaluate if there's some way you could get involved, um, whether time, money, energy, whatever you've got, uh, it makes a difference. I used to do a lot of training where I would take these families and and just help them strengthen their marriages, their relationships to make sure that they were learning, you know, good communication skills so that it wasn't destroying a marriage as they were fostering and caring for these kids. Um, One of the things that I have found is, is key to parenting, as I coach a lot of parents and I coach a lot of kids, is uh, there's a few tricks about helping our kids believe in themselves. Um, a lot of talk is is thrown out there about self-esteem and kids need to have self-esteem and understand their own um, their own sense of who they are and and what they what they bring to this world. And, and I think that's true. Except what they also I believe need is uh, just they just need to know they're, that they that they're cared for that they're worth something, and I don't know. We got to be careful as we are working with our families and our kids and our younger folks, our young adults, the uh, those just graduating maybe from high school. That we need to validate their worth, not just their works. Right, like. We talk a lot about what our kid did, and when he's graduating from high school, yeah, he graduated from high school. He he was, you know, um, valedictorian, top of his class, and we talk about all of these accomplishments. But as soon as we're tying our child's worth to their accomplishments, we might be setting them up for something. Because uh, most kids aren't valedictorian, right? There's one of those. 
per class. So there's 500 that aren't. And yet, if that's what we keep seeing that everyone talks about, we start getting the social mirror reflecting back on us saying, you're not quite cutting it. We want to validate people's worths. And their worth is not just their works. It's not just their touchdown or their looks or their fame or the money they make. You know what it might also be is just their their work ethic, their their sense of um, care for others. They um, their inherent value just simply because they're loved by a god, right? And so validate worth, not just works. Don't get caught up on outcomes only. A lot of parents are, and it, it sets your children up to not necessarily value themselves. Another rule is to encourage your kids by understanding them, right? In, uh, encourage by itself means that we get within the heart of another. So do you even know what your child's goals are? I have parents come in all the time and they tell me, I don't, it, my kids won't listen to me. Well, they won't listen to you because you don't seem to care what's in their heart. Well, of course I do. Well, not if you're always telling them what to do. So when it comes to your kids, if you really want to encourage them, you got to listen a lot more than you're speaking. And that ex- that by letting them express, even if their expression you don't like or is it you know it frustrates you or it's not motivated enough, it doesn't matter. Let them express. Shine a light on their strengths. Identify what they are good at. Go figure out. Take these strengths assessments we talk about on the show all the time um, and go learn about what they're good at. What are their character strengths? And there's we've talked about it on the show recently with Fatima Doman and her strengths program. So if you just go look up our our um, our uh, what are they called? Our podcast. That's it. Go look up our podcast and listen to them, folks, and go figure out what your kid's strengths are. Is is he intuitive? Is he hardworking? Is he social skills? Is he spiritual? And once you know what their strengths are, help them identify daily when they're progressing. Don't just look for where they're not progressing, which is so easy to critique. Why is your room such a mess? Man, you're reading a lot since you got out of school. Why are you reading so much? Talk about what they're doing well. Because if you pinpoint the progress and you know what their strengths are, you might start helping them believe in themselves. Heaven forbid. That's the Coach's Corner. We'll take a break, come back for more tools, more information to help you uh, live longer and love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I probably, I just feel like I need to give you some advice. It's going to be good advice, of course. So, you ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump... Uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we, I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits. 
Bill Marler, put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, Check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Hmm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more... With the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got you got to anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than thirty bacterial outbreaks, primarily salmonella and E. coli, in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know. They've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. That seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads it's to so the hospital. good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got, you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices. Because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah. Okay. It also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, One reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow, at home, you need a life. Not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really – did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No, it's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. 
No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but yeah. that's... It, it sounded right. It sounded yeah. like a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce, probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mmm, sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has... Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No, no. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know, just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, They were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. (laughs) She may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You know, hey, I found some hair. It's just weird to put hair on a necklace. Make make it into a necklace. No, thanks. I'm going to be in the restroom for a minute. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When you talk about morality, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, it's and we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they were like, man, what's wrong with me? Why, Why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we there's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at, a, at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, okay. And um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So so you're justified, right? Because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her. Because that was totally rude. The problem is, even if it's even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, and you can see this in our political world, even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down 
for you to destroy someone's career or, you know, credibility, it, just because it is logical and it, it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system, don't always, they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are. Or you could just shut your flapper and go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. <laughs> Is that – are you trying to show – are you trying to get me mad? So I would – No, I'm trying to be logical. Your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden, it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do is just take the. I just wanted to take his his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical, not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, Twelve or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical, but he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons. This guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, it doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what does what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, – where th- people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Anyway, uh, closest to you, by the way. We'll take a break. More of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us.
everybody who let the dogs out hey did you have a pet growing up did you have a, or do you have one now you know do you have a cat anywhere near you calvin and hobbs 101 dalmatians even the fox and the hound are evidence of humans fascination with animals and our pets some would say that we've only anthropomorphized our pets Others would say that these animals have real bonds with their own owners. Even souls, our guest today is Dr. Harold Herzog, professor of psychology from Western Carolina University and author of the book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, and Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals. He joins us now live from uh, North Carolina. Dr. Herzog, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Matt. Who let the dogs out? Did you like that song? Great. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Great song. Talk to us. How did you get, how does a professor of psychology get into uh, all of these, all of the study of animals and own, and pet ownership? Well, I started out as an animal behaviorist. My PhD is in animal behavior, but at some point I got interested in the sort of moral complexities of our relationships with animals. And at some point, that sort of took over my research interest, so I closed up my animal lab and I started studying uh, human-animal interactions full-time, hmm. including our uh, relationships with pets. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Uh, do, we, do we take it out of perspective? I mean, now there's, there's, there's entire television channels just for animals. There's uh, people watching hours and hours of pet videos or cat videos online. Are are pets good for us? Are they healthy for us? Or are we just now gone extreme? Um, well, I think both. <laughs> I think both of those are true. Um, the question is how we gone extreme. Let's deal with that first. I would say uh, yes to some extent that we have. Um, so, for example, uh, the idea of taking your pet pig on an airplane ride for right. free because it's an emotional support animal <laughs> um, strikes me as being a bit of a bit of an extreme. Um, as is as is to uh, walking into a Walmart with a boa constrictor around your neck because you it, because it, it's a uh, service animal which is going to warn you of an onset of an epileptic seizure. Oh wow! Uh, I I am. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned uh, uh, pet videos. My, it turns out that my cat and I have something in common, and that we both like uh, YouTube videos. And it turns out that there are not just YouTube videos of cute cats. There's also YouTube videos far cats. Are you and, serious? Uh, my yeah. cat loves those videos. My cat is absolutely addicted. It's what I call a kitty porn. People sit there for long periods of time. Unbelievable. YouTube videos of mice running across the, across the screen. Does it's she hilarious. react to it or does she just sit oh, there? Yeah, absolutely. If you're, uh, if you're listening to this show, uh, go to YouTube and uh, type in uh, videos for cats and your life will change. You and your cat will have something that you can, you can Unbelievable. enjoy together. Dude. It's really fun. Well, it's funny because parents do that with their kids. Hey, go watch YouTube. And um, now pet owners can do it with their cats. Is it just cats or Absolutely. are there? Absolutely. It, my, my cat, my, my, uh, my little grandson was addicted to uh, truck videos, truck mm. YouTube videos when he was about three. And yeah. my cat responds the same way to these cat videos. It's really fun. Well, that's funny because your behavior, you can see, you can, you know, you know what's going on in their head. Do dogs respond? No, they don't. That's a great question. It turns out that it's it's a, a cat's cat's respond, and so do some lizards. Wow. Uh, but dogs, it's 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 a it's an interesting 
brain function called the critical flicker fusion. And it's, it's the way uh, animals' brains are wired. And cats have incredibly good... My, my, my cat will not only just watch a, a YouTube video on an iPad, she'll watch it on my, on my iPhone. <laughs> will she dial it up herself? <laughs> yeah. Critical flicker function. That's pretty amazing. Fusion. Critical, fish, uh, critical flicker fusion. Fusion. Yeah. Okay, I gotta get. I gotta go look into that. That's crazy. No, you asked, also asked if if, if, uh, if pets are good for us, didn't you? Ask. Yeah, that? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think uh, for the most part the answer is yes, but I also think that it's sort of a mixed bag, and um, the pet industry definitely pushes the idea that pets have a lot of health benefits and uh, make us happier, healthier people. I think the evidence for that is much more mixed than mm. uh, what you hear in the media. So, so we might just be being sold because it seems like they, are, they also add definitely, in, go ahead. No, go ahead. We are definitely, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, no, you just go right ahead. Okay. We're definitely being sold to some degree. And, uh, you know, as a researcher, what I do, my job is to do is to sort of make sense of, you know, all the research papers and mm-hmm. there's hundreds and hundreds of research papers that have been published on this. And uh, what I found is that there's a mismatch between what the media tells us about the health and psychological benefits of pet ownership and the actual evidence. And the evidence is not as good as the media would have us believe. Hmm. Hmm. So um, some of it, I guess, is just it's almost like it feels more like a parenting instinct, like people end up treating their animals like their children. So it's just almost fulfilling a need to parent. I think that's absolutely true. It, it, you know, you can ask the question, you know, why do we, why do we spend so much time and money and energy on, uh, on taking care of animals that are, you know, are not going to pay us back in the, in the future. You know, they're not going to return the favor, mm-hmm. and we're not genetically related to them. You know, there's no sort of evolutionary basis for that. Um, and I think, I think you're quite right. I think what, uh, you know, especially dogs and cats, animals like that, that they definitely – uh, activate our parental instincts. However, the interesting thing for me is that this is also very influenced by culture. So that puppy, which is absolutely adorable and seen as we, and we treat like a little child in the United States, if we were to go to Saudi Arabia, where uh, pets are considered, uh, or dogs are considered unclean uh, in, hmm. in the Quran, we would find that, they, that they're reviled. They, uh, a, a, a puppy would be like a rat. And on the other hand, if we were to go to Korea, um, where they do have pet puppies, they also that puppy would also be something as uh, seen as lunch, mm. um, something that would be on the dinner table. So, so our culture it plays a big uh, effect in terms of how we think about it. Oh, that's true, huh? And so culturally, yeah, we our our love, our American love of animals, I guess by many could be seen as you know just food storage, or it could be seen as. Um, more of a just the kind of an unclean, even immoral act. Um, that's exactly correct. That that's is exactly interesting. Right. Does does uh, I heard somewhere, and I, you'll know better than anybody, um, it, that human beings are the only chronically uh, anxious animals, and the only other animals that are chronically anxious are domesticated animals that are have kind of a kind of a chronic state of anx- anxiousness. Is that true? Have you ever heard that? I would say, you know, I, I, I don't do animal behavior anymore. I look at the human side of the human-animal interactions, but I'm almost sure that that's completely untrue. Okay. And so, for example, if you were to go to 
look at, at the social structure of a baboon troop in Africa, what you would find is that there are dominant males in that troop, and then there are subdominant males, and there's and there's and there's animals in there that people just get that, excuse me that baboons that just get picked on all the time by the mm. others, and they have uh, they have you know quite a you know quite a miserable existence. Uh, Quite a miserable existence, exactly. So I don't think it's true that we're the only animal that would uh, be chronically. Okay, because it it just seems like if that's the case, then we're probably doing a disservice to most of the animals that live with us is we're just stressing them out. Yeah, I, well, I think there are some ways that we do service. Do, do we do disservices to animals? And part of it is the way that we have bred animals. So if you take bred the pets in our lives, so for example, take a dog like the English bulldog. These animals are uh, have, have terrible health problems, a mm. whole litany of health problems, caused by the fact that we have bred them for certain characteristics. Yeah, we I guess yeah we want them squatty, overweight, mm-hmm. pudgy, big jowls, huh? Yes, they, they have trouble breathing. They have uh, skin problems. They have heart problems. They have uh, just uh, they have they have bad hips. They have bones that ache. Tons of things like that. Hmm. Is um, you know is there talk to us then? I guess overall, if a parent is out there thinking, okay, maybe we ought, it's time to get our kids a pet this spring. Overall, um, would you would you say that's a there's the, the that's a good thing? A bad thing? Are there pros and cons to getting a pet? What should we be having going through our mind as we're thinking about this? Well, the one thing is we should be use a certain amount of common sense. For example, I had one of my students came up to me uh, a year or so ago, and she said that she was pregnant. She was getting ready to have a new infant, and she said that she and her uh, husband were getting ready to, uh, you know, have this kid. And at the same time, they wanted to get a new dog, and so they were thinking about adopting. A dog, and they were deciding what type of dog to adopt. You know, and they were thinking about you know the difference between a German Shepherd, a Pit Bull, and a Doberman, and a, and a Poodle. And um, my feeling about that is, you don't want to be adopting any dogs right now yeah, in your life. Yeah, right. That that's not that's really not the right thing to do in terms of where your attention is going to be, and it's also potentially dangerous, no matter what kind of breed of dog it is for for the for the kid. Similarly, it's Easter right now. Uh. When I was a kid. It was very common for parents to go out and for Easter buy their kid a little, you know, a, a, a bunny, a uh-huh. little bunny, or right. maybe a baby duck or a baby Yeah, no, chick. I got a baby duck for Easter. <laughs> I bet it died. No, it actually lived. It just it just was taken away in about a month because my parents oh, okay. were divorced yeah, okay. and my dad bought it for me. So when I brought a duck home, my mom couldn't roll her eyes further back in her head. <laughs> and that duck was gone. Gone to a pond. Well, that's not a, when, I, when I was a kid, the baby, the baby chicks and the baby ducks would also be dyed some sort of color, like oh, blue or pink or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they were horrible. Well, that's, back not then. A good, that's not a good idea. But on the other hand, under the right circumstances, I think I think pets can be great companions for kids. It depends on the kid. They're not going to be a great. They're great for every kid. And uh, there's some evidence. Interestingly enough, there's uh, a woman that studied this most, Gail Melson, has found out that. In terms of kids' interactions with pets, at least in the United States, there, there's not really many sex differences. You know, boys and girls get attached similarly hmm. to uh, to puppies and kittens and things like that. However, uh, she argues that pets may actually have a specially beneficial impact on boys because it sort of teaches them nurturance. It, it, it's a good oh. model for learning how to care for things. I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Interesting. So, uh, so yeah, pets healthy. 
uh, helps with bonding. Um, and l- let's do this. Let's take a break. We'll continue our discussion with Dr. Hal Herzog from Western Carolina University. And uh, when we come back, we'll find out more about what we could do to prepare our family for a pet, prepare our kids, especially maybe to, um, you know, what's the ideal age? What's what's What would be more advisable to to make sure the pet is healthy and strong? And, um, and, and really, what are all of the benefits that uh, come along with having a pet in the home? Interesting stuff, folks. Helping you live longer, love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. everybody to the Matt Townsend show. You never caught a rabbit, so you ain't no friend of mine. Hey, uh, joining us and uh, trying to help us uncover and better understand our relationship with our pets, Dr. Hal Herzog. Dr. Herzog is a professor of psychology from Western Carolina University. He's also author of the book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, and Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals. Uh, we're so excited that he's joining us today. Dr. Hal Herzog, welcome back. Thanks again. I, I'm enjoying talking with you today. We're learning a lot. I think this is I think this is important because, you know, just historically, the relationship between human and uh, animal, I'm not assuming was always a kind of a friendship. It seems like it seems to me many, many, many years ago, it would have just been a food source. Do you think? I think that's I, yeah. I think that's right. And um, you know what we see is that different cultures has been very different. So, for example, if you go back to the ancient Greeks, Greeks they had they had some pretty close relationships with pets. In fact, they had they had a funeral you know funeral and burial rites and cemeteries for pets in ancient Rome and ancient Greek wow. Greece. And then at other times, there's cultures which there's, there are cultures which don't even have a word for pet, and so their relationships with animals are almost all all negative. Huh. Something that, to eat. That's that is that's um. So so what's happening to us? Uh, and is it? I guess is it getting more and more friendly? And is that meaning we're we're going to see them less as an as a as a food source? That that's a very interesting question. So it's a really it's a really deep question. And um, I guess I guess here's how I would answer that. I would I would say that yes, if we look at in our culture, what we've seen is I think in the last thirty twenty to thirty years, as we've seen a change and how we think about pets. Now, we certainly have had pets, you know, for, for hundreds of years. But in the last 20 or 30 years, we, there's been a phenomenon that the uh, pet products industry calls the humanization of pets. And we've more and more come to see pets as, uh, as people. Mm-hmm. And, and as real members of the family, 95% of people, when answered in national polls, say that they consider their pets to be family members, and increasingly we're treating them like them. So people are more willing to pay, for example, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 in veterinary expenses, let's say, for cancer treatments for their pet or for uh, you know, a, hip, a hip replacement. And they didn't used to do that. Hmm. Uh, and you mentioned before the you know this idea of you know television channels for for dogs, pet day spas, <laughs> um, Amtrak. Amtrak just I think yesterday I read is now allowing people to take take their dogs and cats on Amtrak trains because they think it's going to increase ridership because people wow. don't want to leave home. They don't want to leave their pets home anymore. Yeah, well you can't. So, 
we have seen this change. And I think, that, I think the interesting thing is the other part of that that you asked was very perceptive is, is this going to change the way that we look at animals in terms of, for example, eating them? And, and I think that uh, to some degree, yes, because if you start thinking of your dog as a person, well, what's the difference between your dog and a pig? You know, you start thinking that your dog is a creature that has feelings and, and thoughts and mm-hmm. desires. You know, so does, so does that pig. So I, th- I, think there, I think there is a connection between changes in attitude towards pets and then how we uh, – and changes in our concern for animals generally. Well, and we see it uh, with SeaWorld. SeaWorld is now no longer going to keep doing shows with orca whales. I guess they'll keep – the current bunch they have, but they won't be breeding any in captivity. And I mean, that again is that was that was due to a lot of pressure, social pressure. And I mean, think of that. It changes the whole SeaWorld experience. It does indeed. And then to me, there's an interesting irony here. I was thinking about this the other day. The reason when I was a kid, uh, orcas, you know, we didn't call them orcas. We called them killer whales. And they were seen as being evil. Mm. Um, they they were they were said that they you know, in packs that they would uh, uh, attack you know the good whales and uh, that and and were were dangerous to people and the interesting thing to me is that there's places like SeaWorld that sort of changed that attitude right because all of a sudden they're bringing them to captivity they're interesting in shows and people are starting to see how magnificent how smart they are and then there were movies like Free Willy and of course Blackfish and what happened is now. SeaWorld, which was originally responsible, I think, in part for shifting the paradigm value yeah. about that. Now it's shifted the other way. And so we sort of come full circle on this. Wow. And so really, I mean, again, I guess evidence that we are shifting our view toward animals. And yet uh, I'm assuming with big you know, pet companies that are supplying food and, and all the supplies you need, uh, there's also the promotion that we all should own a pet and and it should be good for us is, is it, do you find that to be are certain people better pet owners than others oh of course there are some people that are horrendous pet owners <laughs> and there are some people that are great there are some people that are great that are great pet owners um how do we decide if we should be getting one well, that's a really good that's a really good question, and sometimes you don't really know. And I had an interesting example of that. I was talking to a journalist one time. Uh, she had moved to New York, and she was lonely, and mm. she had never had a pet before. And she had actually written stories about pets being good for people and and all that. So she and so she she thought, well, I'm you know I'm lonely in New York. What I need is a dog to keep me as a companion. And she went out and got herself a Weimaraner puppy. And uh, you know, was originally sort of a, somewhat attached to the puppy, but you know, she told me we were talking about. It. She said, you know, the bottom line is I'm really not that attached to this dog, and now I don't know what to do. I feel <laughs> guilty about having it. I, I don't. I don't feel like I can give it away. I'm going to take it outside for walks five times a day. I've got to pick up its poop yeah. when I walk down the street. I don't particularly like doing that. And now I'm stuck with this animal in a relatively small apartment, and I'm not attached to it. Yeah. So sometimes, sometimes you don't really know. Mm. It's true, though, huh? And I guess you don't know till you're you're in too deep. Sometimes that's the case, and sometimes some people do get in too deep, and uh, we call them hoarders, mm. and that's not good for the per- people, and it's not good for the animals that are the the victims of their well-intentioned, uh, you know, basically collecting of you know crazy numbers of numbers of animals in their homes. Well, and I, I, that, I guess that's what it is, is we think that the animal would be a great way to not be lonely. But it seems like the conditions have to be also there 
like not an apartment in New York. That's 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 exactly that's exactly correct. And I could look you know, in in the neighbor in my neighborhood. Um, there were uh, you know some of the families had had pets, and this was you know sort of suburban you know community. And uh, some of those pets were were not only well treated, but they were clearly had a very uh, tight relationship and healthy relationship between the pet owner and the pet. On the other hand, there were some people that had gotten pets simply because they thought every kid should have a pet, and the, and they kept they kept in this case it was dogs, a couple of them like that. The dogs were never allowed in the house. The kid, neither the kids nor the parents were particularly attached to the dogs. Hmm. And they were sort of stuck with these animals and the relationship wasn't working. So, you know, even in this one little, you know, community of maybe, you know, 15 homes, there was quite a diversity of relationships that people had with animals. What, what would you say to that family? I mean, because there is a weird guilt association associated with it, right? Like, ah, oh, I don't, I don't love it. And I, I don't want to give it away. Absolutely. And it's 10 more years of life expectancy. That's right. That, well, that, 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 that's exactly right. Well, I think for one thing is they, is they, you know, you don't want to blame them because they were well-intentioned. But the fact is that they got the animals for the, they got the pets for the wrong reason. Right. And, um, and but I think in, in this particular case, I, I felt really bad for the animal. I felt mm-hmm. like the animal was leading a lonely, you know, the, the dogs were leading a, a lonely life being in a relatively small pen. You know, they weren't, they weren't tied to a to a, a chain like some of the hunting dogs that I see around where I live but on the other hand I would not want to be that dog on yeah. the other hand I would I would have I would be fine with being a dog with you know Mrs. Holtzclaw that lived down the street you know yeah yeah be well taken care of a little alive. lap dog right that could just sit there and be totally served um, that's exactly right that's interesting it is so I guess as parents and, and as the holiday comes up a don't just go grab a bunny or a, and don't don't dye a duck. <laughs> don't don't dye a duck pink, a, a nice pastel to give to your kid. But and two, it sounds like what you're saying too is really do a check, do an evaluation of your situation, and you know, is it going to work? And be realistic. Um, there's 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 cost to pet ownership. Um, there's financial cost. Um, the according to the ASPCA, the average dog or cat over a lifetime. Uh, you will rack up about ten thousand dollars in bills for you know care and feeding of that animal. Mm. Um, so that's a pretty that's a pretty big chunk of chunk of change. There's also cost in terms of how it's going to affect um, your your lifestyle um, and what's going to happen. Let's say one of the things that, that I find interesting is that the um, the the families that are most the, the households that are most likely to include a pet. Are uh, families or homes in which there are children? Right. Um, they have the highest proportion of pet ownership. But on the other hand, the people, especially the adults in that family, they're the ones that are least attached to pets. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got they've got their hands full dealing yeah, with their kids, kids to raise. That's exactly what that's I feel. Exa- yeah. That's that's exactly that's exactly right. And so what happens is the people that are most attached to pets are people that are, are living alone or after the children have gone, but they have lower rates of pet ownership. Oh wow. So you know, at some point you retire, uh, you you know, your kids have gone, and you want to travel and things like that, and um, and that pet. Maybe uh, may, may, you know may sort of um, you know sort of sort of clip your wings. Clip yeah, your totally. Wings yeah, yeah. Cramp your style. Uh, what cramp your style. as we as we wrap it up? Talk to us a little bit about your book. Um, it's it seems like it's such a great title of a book, really. Uh, 
and, and just maybe let us know what what's in the book. The book's titled "Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat." And um, what I'd love you to do is just explain what we would find in the book. Yeah, what you would find is a uh, a, a look at our the human animal relationship from the perspective of anthozoology, which is the new science of human animal relationships. It's a branch of psychology, sociology, history, veterinary medicine, lots of different things. And my uh, basic assumption is that we learn a lot about ourselves by uh, by how by studying how we look at animals. So it covers everything from the ethics of uh, animal research to uh, whether or not uh, you know if you were to come back as a chicken, would you rather come back as a, a fighting cock or a McNugget? And I conclude you'd rather come back as a fighting cock. I'd rather be a fighting cock um, myself. <laughs> there you go. It covers our relationship with pets. It covers our relationship with meat. And it, the, the basic theme is how do you wake up in the morning and decide how to be a good person? Hmm. I mean, it really... It's, and how we treat our animals is probably a pretty good gauge of what kind of person we are based on our culture, I guess. But it's very, very complicated. Yeah, it it's is. It's very complicated very fast. You know, why do we, why do we eat one animal with, without a bit of guilt and we, and we bring another animal into our lives and love it and love it so, mm. so deeply? Interesting. And again, happiness. We may feel happy holding a pet, and it seems like, you know, they're taking pets to people in, uh, you know, senior centers to help them be happy and heal. Is is that happiness? Is that happiness coming from the animal? Is it a placebo effect? Or is there an actual physiological benefit to it? Okay, well, there's, there's, if, you take, if you take that animal into a nursing home, what you, get, what you find is that there is a, for some people, a lot of people, there is a physiological benefit. You actually change their blood pressure. You change their levels of the uh, social bonding hormone, oxytocin. You get a little rush of dopamine, which is the uh, reward hormone. On the other hand, if, and this was a recent Gallup poll and other studies have found the same thing, if you go out and survey Americans and you say, you know, rate your, you know, you know, rate your scale of happiness on a scale of 1 to 10, what you find is that pet owners don't rate any happier as a group than non-pet owners. Mm. So pets are not pets are not placebo. They, excuse me, that pets are not panaceas. Yeah. Um, they they uh, they 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 can be incredibly incredibly rewarding, but not for everyone. We've we've always had pets, and I get a, I get a kick out of my cat, especially now that we can watch cat videos together, <laughs> which I highly recommend that yeah, all, all your listeners do. I think Hal, you probably have your own cat video website you're trying to promote. No, I don't. I have absolutely no. I have absolutely no. You need, you need no to get some money in the I'm game, Hal. absolutely fascinated by it. I think it's great. Well, we appreciate you. It's wonderful insight. And uh, for all the dog owners and animal lovers out there, uh, you know, it, it does do a lot, I think, for us to just think about why we do what we do and, and think about why you eat what you eat and where's the disconnect sometimes. Um, interesting stuff. Let, 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 me, yeah. let me mention one more thing real yeah. quick. Um, I write, uh, you, you, you know, go buy my book. That'd be great. But on the other hand, I write a, uh, a blog uh, for Psychology Today magazine, which you can get absolutely for free. And it's called Animals and Us. So if you just Google Animals mm. and Us, uh, my blog will pop up and you can get, um, you know, lots, lots of, of stuff on, yeah. lots of stuff on human-animal interactions from that blog site. Good stuff. And we love, we, we love the, the blogs on Psychology Today. Uh, Hal, thanks so much. Keep up the great work. And, uh, well, you know, I'll see you in the chat room on the cat site. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks take, for having take me Take care. You bet. Good Bye-bye. stuff. Good stuff. Uh, appreciate, again, Dr. Uh, Hal Herzog 
when you think about it, it's we just have these animals, right? And most of us aren't thinking too deeply about it, but it might be good to to you know figure out why and what you feel, and even open up some conversations with your kids about what they do feel when they're holding the animal, or when they're serving it, or when they're helping it when it's hurt. Uh, you know, there's a lot of lessons in how we handle and treat our animals. Great stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up this second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. Helping you live longer, love stronger, and uh, maybe even get a pet. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, you know, they're animals. Really, you can learn a lot. I loved every day coming home when I was a young man. Uh, come home from school, and all of a sudden, I knew at my back door, because I was a latchkey kid. No, my, no one was home when I'd get home from my school. Um, sisters were at their school or their other events. I'd get my key from uh, the milk box and would open up my back door, but my dog was always right there, buddy. Happy as ever. Cutest little Maltese poodle you've ever seen uh, with his cute underbite. He just was so happy to see me. I'd hug on him every day. He was there every day. Then I'd go get him some peanut butter. I'd Every day I'd stick my nasty little boy finger in our peanut butter jar, get a big dollop of peanut butter on my finger, and then wipe it on the roof of my dog's mouth and would laugh and laugh as that dog would try to lick off the peanut butter. It was my ritual that I would do every day with my my dog, Buddy. Cute as can be. You're a monster. I know. And, uh, you know, eventually that dog died of heart disease. And I have no idea why. I think my mom just fed him really bad stuff. Couldn't have been, you know, the jars and jars of peanut butter that I used to kill my dog. Anyway, but it was. It made me safe. It made me happy. It was. He was mine. He was my best friend. I remember when I got to pick him out of the litter. I remember when my mom surprised me with them in my in a bag of groceries after she told me to go get the groceries out of the car. Oh, great memories, folks. So animals, you can love them. Uh, they are also not what they always appear to be. Interesting stuff. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Lots of fun up next hour. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game, like uh, Brian Tracy. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And, um, you know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money. And But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's 
it's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind, in his in his head. It really is about principles. And I think that's all Brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success. You can argue against them if you want, but it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales. I mean, if, if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating sales, and uh, you know, a little homegrown business is spending 10% on sales, wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? Have you ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take in, you know, six months from now? And then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know, it helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So anyway, it's, uh, it's just some basic information. Um, and, uh, but also, I think if you just look at, uh, like, Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. You, if you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing, you're doing okay. Doesn't, make, doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long-term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to, to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a Listen to this story of a 90-year-old woman um, from Michigan decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son, Tim, daughter-in-law, Ramey, and their poodle, Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor... They would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. 
In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you, gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, it sure sounds like a better way to do it. Now, um, I have put together in the past a project I call the Project of Elimination. There are certain things that keep us stuck. And um, I'm going to, as we do this little coach's corner, go through a bunch of different tools that you might want to just get rid of. Things you just need to declutter out of your head. Think of it as like a spring cleaning. You know, as as spring comes uh, and winter's done, it's time to clean out the house. Back in the day, remember, they'd bring out the rugs and they'd beat up their rugs to get all the dust out of them. It's time to spring clean. Let me give you a few things I'd suggest that you start to, to let go of. Number one, let go of the stories that don't serve you. How many times have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about, but we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I, I, I want them. I'm a, I'm a grandpa that'll play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. <laughs> Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you, you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. Anyway, it's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They, they actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating, wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. (laughs) People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life are intangible. They're not even... 
you can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. This is called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? You're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under, right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do. We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, You don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. Yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray and then I got to pray. Well, you could say no. Overs and unders, we all do it. And sometimes it's over, you know, we're overconfident. uh, And some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do you you overschedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't ever say yes to anything? And you don't ever step out of your comfort zone. We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life, there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. More of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studios, our good friend, Dr. Brian Willoughby. He's an assistant professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. He's also the director of the Relate Institute, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to studying and improving romantic relationships. If you go to the website, relateinstitute.com, uh, great resource, resource, whether you're single, married, uh, or like a professional, you can actually send people there and they can take these assessments and find out what, Dr. Willoughby. First of all, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Then what would they find out? They'd find out everything about who they are uh, like internally. Really? Like everything about themselves. You, uh, you are a white male. <laughs> you are overweight. Yeah. You have this. What would they, what they, would they find out yeah. that would matter? They, in the relationship. They, the assessment is designed to give them insight into the strengths and weaknesses of the relationship. That's cool. Is that, you know, we, we all know that our relationships are okay in some sense and, and not in others. And, and this is a research-validated assessment that you don't have to go to a therapist yeah. for. You don't yeah. have to go, you know, somewhere else. You can just take it in the comfort of your home. And it'll say, here's, here's where you're struggling. Here's some areas you might want to think about. Here's some areas of strength. Yeah. And it'll give you that really good breakdown of, of all the things we know matter in terms of relationships. But it doesn't say, eh. 
You're yeah. married to a loser. No. You must eject. It does not do that. It nope. just says this is what's going on, but then it gives you resources, right. articles, yep. things you can go do. Discussion questions you can talk to, and you can actually take it with or without your partner. Cool. And if you take it with your partner, it'll actually combine your answers together so you can put them all in one graph and say, here's what you think is going on. Oh, Here's what your partner thinks is going yeah. on. Yeah. And then uh, this is what my girlfriend says. Right. Which that's a whole third. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we haven't added the yeah, third Don't do that piece one because that's a nightmare. Yeah. Talk about – and the singles on your site uh, because singles, it's a weird deal. A lot of people don't know where to go to date somebody. So if you're somebody that doesn't go to a bar, mm-hmm. you, it's hard to find somebody. You had mm-hmm. talked about this before about the marketplace kind of shrinks. So right. if you don't marry at a certain age – yeah. You may have set yourself up because your age group of peers are kind of moving on. Right. And then all of a sudden you got to go find them somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And you're in that oftentimes now service-oriented job where I'm working 60, 70 plus hours trying to move up that corporate ladder. Yeah. And now all of a sudden my social circle are the person across the cubicle from me, (laughs) one or two people at the gym with headphones on and, you know, maybe a religious group, maybe something else. But, but yeah, I've I've lost a lot of those opportunities that I used to have for social interaction to find dating partners. So then where do we, where are they supposed to go? Some would say go online. And so as a researcher in marriage and family, what, what, what's your take in the online dating world? Yeah, so it's interesting because we we do see this spike in online dating yeah. around twenty five. Right? Really? Yeah. Yes, it's it's. I've left college. I've I've tried. You know, for a lot of people, I've I've tried that to keep dating for a couple of years, and now I'm just frustrated. So, <laughs> so and I'm approaching that kind of doomsday date a lot of people have in their head, which is thirty. Yeah, right? oh, don't, okay. I, you got to be married by gotta thirty. Got to be thirty, especially if you want kids. And so, so a lot of more people, you know, thousands, millions of people now are turning to these online dating sites um, to, to one, try to find a lot of people. But two, you know, what do all these sites advertise? We'll find them for you. Well, yeah. yeah not only will we give you access. You do work. You don't have to do anything. We'll, we'll have you take this assessment. Yeah. We'll link you up. We'll help you find your soulmate. Um, and it, it's interesting because there's starting to be some research that's come out now that suggests that these relationships that are formed online are a lot less stable than wow. other types of relationships. Why? Why would you, what would your gut feeling be as you a know, researcher? So, so full disclosure here. Yeah. I, at one point in my career, helped design one of these matching sites. Did you? Okay. I will not name which company it's out. Yeah. It is. Um, but, but the interesting thing is that most of them are set up to do everything wrong in terms of how you start a relationship. Really? If, if you, if you go into one of these sites and you look at what they're doing, number one, is that most of them are set up so that the way, you know, I can take an assessment, I yeah. can have them match people. But most of what I do is I go on, I put in these characteristics. I want, you know, a woman who's yeah. this tall. Five, and, seven, yeah. yeah. And they don't do weight, but we'll do slim build yeah. or athletic build, right? So it's kind of these <laughs> pseudo weight things. right? And then I get these pictures, right? And I can just scroll through all yeah. these profiles and find someone. Find and, your find your mate, your right. your life partner, your your eternal Love. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the problem is, is that it makes dating a shopping endeavor. Right. Right. Like you're picking out fruit. Mm. You know, I look at yeah. this apple. Oh, that one's got a spot over there. I put that one back. <laughs> and it, it's it, true. It, it builds into this mentality of I'm trying to find the perfect person, yeah. which doesn't exist. Right. And then if I do find what I think from a profile picture is the perfect person and we start dating, inevitably something will come up that I don't like about you. And then it's, oh. Back to the list, Next. right? Because look, there's there's thousands, millions of millions of people out there. I will find someone better for you. It's so true. Yeah. The other thing that happens then is if I do do the assessments and I'm getting matched with other people, 
you know, eHarmony and other people that will do this, is if you actually look at what they're assessing, they're assessing things like depression and anxiety and personality traits and then matching people based on similarities in a lot of yeah, cases. you're both depressed. Yeah, you're both depressed. You got something <laughs> to talk about, right? Which therapist have you seen? Oh, What's your medication? horrible. And so just, just the, the way that they match people, it, again, doesn't have any connection with what we know from research is actually what matter. I mean, there there are a few things that you usually want to match in terms of Life values, yeah, worldviews, religion, yeah. religion, those type of things, you know, family background. But that's not what they're matching people. They're matching people on personality traits and, you know, are you red or blue and, and those oh, things that don't necessarily yeah. matter. So all of a sudden you you are – you might even have a placebo effect. It might even feel good. You might mm-hmm. even be finding people. I always have seen these sites as they're useful simply because they bring people by you. Right. Yeah. Which is better than what you're getting just sitting in your seat right. in a call center. Yeah, we there, there's something out there called the filter theory of attraction, which yeah. helps us figure out why people end up together. And the first filter is this fancy propinquity, mm. which is who are you around, okay. right? Is that I have to date people I have access to. Right, right. And so you're right. What, one of the things the site does that can be helpful is – it does give me access to a lot of different people that are potential dating partners right. that are but, single. That but are not if there. you're excluding them all. I mean, right. people will exclude some. So many people that I coach will tell me that yeah, they're not having any luck. Right. And I'm like, well, why? And I'm like, because everybody that's wanting to go out with me, they're just like, they're dogs. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say, and you exactly. think, wow. Yeah, and so it's it's not even necessarily the sites. Right. It's the mentality that those sites promote. Exactly. Like I said, that shopping list mentality mm-hmm. of I'm trying to find that perfect fruit out yeah. there. And as soon as we get in that m- mindset of finding a perfect partner or having a soulmate, I have one person out there I'm trying to find. Right. It usually undermines commitment yeah. in the relationship, which is core foundation of everything in a relationship is commitment. So and, – and commitment to learn, to grow, to change, mm-hmm. to figure it out. To So – you know, yeah, you're not going to find the perfect person. You kind of need to – do you need to just be flexible? Right. Because a lot of people would say, well, yeah, but – I mean they've got to be good looking. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. OK. Yeah. But that's not what's going to keep you together right. for 50 years. Well, and also right? the research even shows they become more good looking the more you get to know them, right? Right. So mm-hmm. – Yeah. Change, it's a different type of attraction. Yeah. You've got to be attracted. Well, sure. I mean – Yeah. Sure. And that's that's what I tell people is that's what brings you together. That's that's the catalyst that's, yeah. for a relationship. So that it's not that physical appearance and physical presentation doesn't matter. Because right. it does. It does. That's what brings you together. But it's not what builds a relationship. And it long-term. won't be what keeps you together. Yeah, it doesn't want, yeah, it's not what keeps you together. That's that commitment. I was mm-hmm. working with a couple last night actually. And the first thing, you know, having communication problems. And the very first thing I said is before we talk about anything else, let's talk about commitment. That this whole conversation is different if we go into it with the mindset of, I'm committed to you. So we're working on something. That's we're going to work yeah. on yeah. our flaws versus I'm going to see if this works out yeah. and then I'll make a decision mm-hmm. about if I stay. Because if, if somebody senses, I call it being in, that you're not in, you're yeah. not in commitment, yeah. then it yeah, then this whole thing goes different. Right. Yeah, because I've got one foot out the door uh-huh. already. And that's what we you. see with the online dating. A lot of people have – one foot out the door, at least one foot back on the right. site, right? Browsing yeah. as I'm dating you just in case. I think, it, yeah. Oh, this is interesting. Uh, we'll have to come back, Brian. Give us a sec. More with Dr. Brian Willoughby, assistant professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. Also go to relateinstitute.com, relateinstitute.com, and uh, look at those assessments. Great tools for you, whether you're a single or a couple. 
Get in there, check those out. Solutions for professionals as well. We'll take a break. More with Dr. Brian Willoughby when we come back right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with Dr. Brian Willoughby, one of BYU's greatest professors, one of the younger ones, too. And I'm sure he's got a red hot chili pepper on his, um, what do they call that site? Rate my professor. Rate my professor. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Every professor hates it when I bring that up, but he's a great guy. And he's helping you learn how to have better relationships. Go to his website. It's uh, relateinstitute.com. He's the director of Relate Institute, which is a nonprofit organization. And uh, it's it's taken years of BYU researchers to put together this site, yeah. and they've handed the keys and the and the reins to you. Yeah. Well, Do, do they not know that – you're a crazy driver. Yeah. Well, everyone else was busy, and so they looked around the room, and I was the only one. Brian, sitting what are you there. doing, man? <laughs> like, okay, I'll are you do done? This. Are you done sweeping? But yeah, it, I mean, it's back to the '70s is when when that assessment tool started to get developed. So yeah. it's almost 40 years of research now. Well, and that. it's it's really cool because you can take it by yourself and just mm-hmm. go work on you. You can go work as a couple. Mm-hmm. You can work on it as a single. Yep. What does it tell you as a single? So as a single, what we have it's called a ready assessment. And it's going oh. to answer the question, are you ready to be in a relationship? That's and good. so it's going to ask you a bunch of questions about yourself, and, uh-huh. and it's going to give you an assessment report just like our couple one. But now it's going to speak to what are some things that you might want to work on individually hmm. as you work towards a healthy relationship. Well, and what so, would that be? So what would be ideal? So if you're a single out there, what are the things you want to make sure you've got covered in order to be an ideal candidate? Yeah. So one of the things we talk about in the report is just – the, a lot of the same things actually in a relationship, like yeah. communication skills, right. interpersonal skills, conflict resolution. Just because you're not in a relationship doesn't mean you're not having conflict and right. communication with everyone in your life. And it's not like you start from ground zero once you start dating. You're just bringing in all of those communication skills that you have with your coworkers, with your friends, with your parents. Yeah. And so it gives you a sense. And we talk about it, that's That's one thing that you might want to work on you before got, you, you get in a relationship. Well, it, it's all about conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of that going on. Plus, it's about, I guess, selfishness. Right. Yep. So we talk about personality traits a little bit, yeah. kindness, cool. flexibility, you know, these things that we know are, are good for a relationship um, that, that are going to help you have a healthy relationship. We talk about things like attachment. Mm-hmm. Good. I was um, going to ask because that's your last time you talked about how that might be what's prolonging some of these Yeah. Yeah, These people is, from is, wanting to marry. How open are you to be emotionally close with other people hmm. in your life? And we would give you a sense of that because we also know that's an important part yeah. of the relationship. Is, um, and so they take the assessment. Then they kind of know, oh, see, I'm not. So I should just give up. No, <laughs> yep, then it gives we, clues. We have, the whole thing just says yes, no. Should you try? <laughs> you will not. never marry. Yeah. No, no. We do it just like the, the couple assessment where we give you graphs yeah. and we have kind of a, a blue, white, and red and – so the red is, hey, this is something you might want to think about getting some resources and helping with. That's you great. know, white is, think about it. It could be a problem, could not. And blue is, you're probably good. That's great. Good to go. Locked yeah. and loaded. Locked and loaded. And so if you're about to get married, that's a great thing to go do together. Yes. Yeah. In fact, we have 
a lot of religious leaders, a lot of counselors around the country that do premarital counseling that use Relate because it's not just something for, uh, well, we're having problems and we right. don't want to go to a therapist, but it's a great tool to figure out, okay, what are those things before we get married that we want to kind of go in wise, eyes wide open on yeah. that we're going to be proactive right from the beginning and working on? Because every couple has weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Every couple has things that they're struggling with or might struggle with in the future. And as I, I tell my students, um, one of the best things my advisor told me in my PhD program, one of the things that stuck with me is he said, most couples don't break or end their marriage because of the Ebola virus. They right. said most couples end their marriage because the common cold wasn't treated and it turned into pneumonia. <laughs> That's true. Huh? It's a slow kind of drip. Yeah, it's no little things. It's that. things that if you addressed at the beginning would never have gotten up. But it creeps, doesn't it? Yeah. Which is why character and communication and commitment. I mean, that's why we make a commitment. When you think about it, you make a commitment with hundreds of people watching you, make a promise to each other Mm -hmm. so that those people will be there over the lifetime, right? Right. Right. We need that. There's a community side to this that says you're in for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. There's that public declaration of commitment. Yeah. To each other again, as we talked That's about, huge. that commitment then forms the foundation. Is that couples that internalize that commitment, that remember it, that you know, ten years down the line, we're going through a rough patch, a rough week, a rough month, even a rough year. I can think back to that commitment and say, okay, I committed to you. We're going to get through this. I'm going to put my resources into this. Those are the couples that make it. But what if, what if all of a sudden you see there's a surprise? Your partner. Forgot to tell you about their gambling problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Am I just supposed to stay committed to that? I hear that all the time. Right. Well, in some ways, yes. Right? That and was at what least the try. commitment was, right? Yeah, that's what the commitment was. No, it doesn't necessarily mean that you might eventually decide that this person isn't reciprocating that. Right. That's the other thing I always tell people is that you can be the most healthy, well-communicating, you know, have yeah. all the skills you need. But if your partner isn't doing any of those things— there's not. nothing you can right. do. Um, but yeah, when those things come up that that break trust, whether it's a gambling or other addiction, whether it's a secret, whether, you know, whatever it is, that if that first reaction is, let me understand why and let me build towards working and, and building this and, and helping us get past this, yeah. that oftentimes will help a lot of couples get past those things. You know, and again, sometimes if, you know, it's been 10 years and you've had that gambling thing and- you it, keep saying you're going to do something it's and it's away. not and you're, you're not working, then yeah, we have another conversation. Right. But that first reaction, and that's oftentimes in therapy when that happens is the first thing you're in is, is in crisis mode. Right, exactly. And you're just helping them process the emotions to get past it. We're not going to make any decisions. Yeah. We're not going to try to figure out exactly. We're just going to, let's get through the next couple of weeks. Let's, yeah. And, and let's start learning what's really going on, what's right. really the problem. Yeah. And I guess having that commitment and being in – Makes it so it's safe. That's a safe thing to explore, right. and it doesn't mean we're we're permanently in. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you can't change, but it means right now let's just explore. Yeah, and there's there's power and there's safety in that yeah. for both partners. Right to know that okay, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're talking about, I don't have to doubt this this relationship that we have. Yeah, because you also need that to heal. Somebody yeah. might need that safety to know that they can go deal with an addiction or they can go deal with right a problem. Yeah. It's huge. What about um, problems? Some people think that having problems in a marriage is a sign that it's doomed and it was never supposed to work because right. good couples don't have problems. 
right? I, I want to meet one of those couples <laughs> one time. Where are I they? I keep hearing about exactly. them. And you are one I of those. I haven't found one that, right. that doesn't have any problems. No, it's every couple has problems. You should, right? Because right? yeah, that's should. normal. Yeah. And, and in fact, some scholars have even argued that there will be a handful of things that couples have that will never be reconciled in their entire marriage. You can't fix them. You can't fix them, you know, whether it's political or or something else, that that's pretty common for couples, that they just kind of learn to live with it. Um, But every couple is going to have conflict. When I teach conflict um, to clients or to couples I'm working with or to my students, I always point out that conflict is not inherently bad. It's how you deal with it. Conflict just means to have a disagreement. How you deal with the conflict, that's what's key is how are we dealing with it in a healthy or unhealthy way. And so that's what really matters is not if we have problems, but how are we dealing with them? Are we using that as an opportunity to grow as a couple and learn about each other, become a better person? Or are we using those as opportunities to fight and have conflict and resentment and negative emotion? It's so true. And to know that, I mean, think about it. You're not going to get through anything. You're going to eventually have your parents, your in-laws that will get sick and will need to be cared for. Mm-hmm. You're eventually going to have maybe a financial issue or a job loss. Right. Life is going to throw you a curve. Right. Well, you've got to be ready for it. Yeah, and think about the paradigm shift of we're having all these fights about my in-laws, let's say, of isn't this fun that we get uh, or exciting? We get this opportunity to be better as a couple now. Yeah, because we get to work. Yeah, on you this. see it as an opportunity to grow to stronger. Yeah, instead yeah. of uh, see validate, I shouldn't have made this decision. Right. Yeah. ten years ago. But now this this is going to make us one of those couples. You know, the eighty year old couple sitting across from each other. Right. Everyone thinks is so cute. Oh, aren't they we're, cute? Yeah. We're slowly working towards that. That's right. Where you're sharing like teeth. Yeah. Oh, that's a story. Yeah. That's a gross story. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they only had one set of teeth. Um, well, Brian, we appreciate you. Brian Willoughby's his name. Go to check out his website, drbrianwillaby.com or relateinstitute.com. Two great resources from really one of the best, uh, Dr. Brian Willoughby, the man, the myth, the legend, and a red hot chili pepper on Rate Your Professor. I don't know if you are. I'm sure you are. I, I think. Yeah. He's got I don't one. Think I'm He's a got no, one. no. It's been confirmed by our staff. Okay, you are so you, you are one. You have one red hot chili pepper. Well, I could just retire now. You're done. Yeah. You don't need anything else. You're done. Brian Willoughby's his name. Uh, check him out, Doctor Brian Willoughby. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, this judgment idea, this self-love idea, a lot of people, for some, it's just so squishy. Oh, just love, love. But the, the reality, folks, um, and I see it all the time, we, we all have, we all just are carrying such junk, so many stories and beliefs of who we are that are so misguided. And I, I've, I had a chance this weekend, um, quite an honored uh, chance. It was a beautiful honor um, where a friend of mine, I've talked about him on the show many times. His name is Ralph Smith, 99 and about two thirds years old. Okay. 99 and two thirds years old. And he's, um, he was always, he's been my mentor. Basically he's been a friend. We adopted him about seven years ago and he just, I've just loved the dude. Well, he died, and I had the chance to speak at his funeral. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about him because for me, he is the exactly what we were just learning from Martina. He is the epitome of that. He was a 
he was 99 and a half. He was born in 1915, died in 2015. Uh, but he, he changed my life. In seven years, I've, I've never in my life met a human being um, like, like Ralph Smith. Humble as ever. He was uneducated um, until 70-something, 72 or three years of age. He went back to high school, got his GED, and uh, graduated, got his GED, and um, proud, proud moment. Uh, but he was one of the first people to receive penicillin west of the Mississippi many, many years ago. Um, however, he wasn't rich. Um, he wasn't famous. He wasn't powerful. He wasn't, uh, you know, he didn't hold office. But every day he would just serve and take care of people, and he was happy. And and I remember asking him, where does all of his happiness come from? And he said, because I'm blessed. I've got so many blessings in my life. And I'm like, how? How? What do you mean? You're old. Your wife died. You want to die, but you're not dying yet. Why are you feeling so blessed? And he said, seriously, I wake up every day. I have a God that I believe in, and... If he hasn't taken me off this earth yet, then it's not my time to go. And other than that, I'm just going to be happy and and be me. I can't be anyone other than me. And so he would serve. He lived in a, a kind of a, a senior facility and would get up and um, for months could just walk around and would go talk to everybody. He eventually uh, couldn't walk around as easily, so he drove his little jazzy around Um up to about a year and a half ago, he was still driving a car. He was healthy as can be. Now, here's what he taught me, though. And some of the things that I found and was able to talk about at this funeral, um, million stories, and everybody had heard his stories, and he loved sharing his stories. But the number one thing he would do is he would just serve people. And the service is what made him happy. It's not, uh, you know, not his conditions, he didn't expect to be happy because his conditions were great. He expected to be happy because he was serving. And he would he would take care of other people. He would always hold hands. And um, the minute you walked in, he would cheer and scream like, yay! Like he was so excited that you were there. He would give your, your his full attention to you. My kids for seven years had the chance of seeing him regularly. He became their grandfather to him. But what he taught me more than anything on earth— is how to love a person. And he had a wife that was named Barbara, and for 74, 75 years, I believe, they um, were married, okay? 75 years of, of love. Now, it wasn't, it was really interesting because she was a really tough cookie. Wonderful woman, incredible woman, but, and he loved her with all of his heart, yet she, was, she wasn't always happy with him. One time he got bucked off of a horse right into a big pile of manure in his yard. He had a huge farm, basically. And uh, he was just filthy, dirty. And he thought it was pretty funny. And he came over and wanted to give her a hug. And um, she got all mad at him. And she basically made him take a shower with the hose in the front yard and was not letting him in the house till he was perfectly clean. Um there were times too that she wasn't happy with him. She wasn't, uh, you know, she wasn't always calm with him. And he would just go out to the yard and work in the yard and fix the yard. And and yet, 
I'll never forget every time we'd go over and see him, he'd be sitting right next to her and um, holding her hand. And he taught me that's just how you do it. You just you just love her. And I asked him once, how do you not get so mad at her when she's mad at you? How do you do that? It seems like it'd be it'd be really hard to not be ticked. And he's like, well, because I love her. I know, but she's sometimes mean to you. Yeah, that's all right. We're all mean. And I just love her. So he would just live it. It it wasn't magic. And he never got into any of this psycho stuff where about psycho psychotherapy and he never went to therapy with her and he never did stuff like that. He didn't he didn't need to. He just forgave her. And he didn't judge her. Now, and I sat there and I, I compare him to so many of my other clients that have such a high need to judge their spouse. And they're so convinced that their spouse is the one that's doing all of this harm. And yet my great friend Ralph realized it's not going to do him any good to just be justified not liking her because she's got issues. At some point, we just need to quit using the stories to justify why we are not doing what we need to do. And what he needed to do is forgive her and serve her. Yeah, but he's being walked on. And interestingly, he never felt like he was being walked on. Every time she'd even attack, which wasn't often, but when she would, he would just take it as a chance to learn. So how are you doing on that front? Would you rather have a story that is justified about how somebody is so messed up and hurtful, or would you rather work on you? Well, what if they really are? What if they're being abusive? If they're being abusive, we can't talk. We can't have that. So go get in your safe place. If you're being abused, you got to get away. Go get the help. And then when you're away, what I would suggest you do is you become the change you need to be. Whatever you need to work on, you work on that, right? You've got to work on it. Ralph being justifiably rude to his wife because she was rude to him wouldn't make Ralph a better person. And one of the things we all basically said about Ralph in the end was that he's the kind of guy that in the end was the perfect epitome of somebody that comes to this earth and learns to just become godly. He just becomes an incredibly honorable, amazing, decent man. He wasn't necessarily born that way necessarily. He may have been, but he also just became that by making better choices in his life. And then he attributed all the good in his life to his God, and he attributed the bad uh, in his life to to things that he could improve, and he worked on it, and he wasn't perfect. But he suffered loss. He lost a lot of friends when they were young. He had a tragic accident take place in front of him where somebody he loved dearly was shot and killed. I mean, he's seen a lot of things. He lost children. He lost grandchildren. But when you're 99 and three quarters, you pretty much have lost everybody. But he was a beautiful man, and he became a beautiful man not by luck and not by stories. He became a beautiful man by just not gossiping about people. He became a beautiful man by every time somebody would treat him poorly, he wouldn't justify that as a way to go treat the other person poorly. He would just take it and turn it into love. He would take pain and he would convert it into love. Well, he sounds perfect. No, he wasn't perfect. He was just a dude. But he's a dude that changed my family's life and changed thousands, I think, of other families in the end have been impacted by this guy. And again, not famous, not nominated, not voted into anything, not 
you know, never made millions, just worked his little part of the world. So can I just challenge all of us to just get rid of the stories? They're not making you better. You're not more justified because other people have hurt you and now you're justified to be angry at them. You will never go anywhere if you remain justified to be angry. All the great thought leaders, all the great wise teachers of our world have all taught at some point you just need to let it go. And you become the change that you need to be in the world. And I learned that from Ralph Smith. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to miss the man. But honestly, too, he's a guy that was so excited to his wife passed away a few years ago and he wanted to get back with her as fast as he could. So we would re- we would really pray for him as a family to die in a good way, to go be with his God, to go be with his wife, to go be with his family and the kids that he had lost as a young father, uh, to go be with his brother, uh, people that had passed away before. Anyway, we've all got it. We've all got it. We're not here to be perfect. We're just here to learn. And as soon as we start understanding that our pain in our life, no matter what, is not always – it's not coming from everybody else in the world. It's coming from me and my response to what's going on in my world. As soon as I get that, I can start to become the change. Doesn't mean there's not really abusive people in the world. I'm not saying that. There are. And – Chasing them doesn't help you. You've heard me use the quote a million times from Stephen Covey. It's not the snake that bites you that kills you. It's chasing the snake that drives the venom to the heart. So chasing somebody that's hurt you, being unforgiving, being judgmental of them, it will never suit you. It will never serve you. You're so much better than that. You were made to be so much better than that. You are a being of infinite worth, right? And don't play small. Your playing small does not serve the world. Marianne Williamson teaches that. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This idea that supportive, being supportive, is the number one trait uh, that's, that makes you a very attractive person. I mean, really think about it. Physical attraction aside, in the end, a lot of what we complain about is our lack of support, the lack of attention, the lack of safety, the lack of appreciation or respect or dedication from our partner. And so... Man, if we could if we could just somehow truly get into this uh, art, this emotional intelligent skill of being a supportive partner, it might be pretty interesting how you might be able to change the world. Listen to this um, crazy story, though, that came out of New York City. New York City tried to fire an employee for missing about 18 months of work, though he was dead during some of that time. Okay. The City Human Resource Administration accused the $38,000 a year Medicaid eligibility specialist of abandoning his job as of November 2013. An administrative law judge recommended last month that Jeffrey Tolliver be fired, noting that he didn't appear for a July 1st hearing. He couldn't because he was dead of cancer um, last December at age 65. So he didn't appear for the July hearing, but it's because he had died of cancer in December. A spokesman says the Human Resources Agency took steps after calls and certified letters to Tolliver's home. And uh, when all those calls went unanswered for over a year, they had to take steps. They got to get serious about stuff. And um, Anthony Tolliver says he believes his brother's family apprised his employer of his long hospitalization and death. Um, that apparently they didn't get the message. So as we sit there and talk about supportive, if you're a coworker and your fellow coworker is suffering from cancer, 
Do you know it? Again, people can be private, but man, are we so not connected with our coworkers and our and the people in our lives that we don't know somebody's been dead for six months? We don't even know enough about them to track down a family member, to find a Facebook page. Anyway, just think about it. What kind of coworker are you? What kind of partner are you? Are you supportive? Are you are you the kind of person that can detect when your partner is down and sad and frustrated or bummed out? And do you care enough to say anything? Or, oh, I don't want to go there. Then she'll complain. Let's not do that. In the end, um, if supportiveness is an attractive feature of humans, it's probably something you ought to focus on. And more importantly, it just makes you feel better, right? Because the more supportive you are, the more attractive you are to the people around you. And the more attractive you are to the people around you, the more you will benefit, the more secure you'll be in your life. And uh, that that's probably goes both ways. Do you know enough? Do you talk enough? Do you share enough with your coworkers that uh, if you did get sick, if you were down and out, that they'd actually miss you? I had a boss once that... He um, needed to have some help moving, and he just asked a bunch of his coworkers and friends and employees that worked with them, and he's going to have a party, and if any of you want to help me come move, I'd love to have that. And he had like 30 people pull up, and they weren't like forced to go, but they wanted to be there, and it was a party, and people helped him move. How many of you couldn't get 30 family members? How many of you couldn't get five family members to help you move? It might be the more supportive we are, the more support we get. So if that's the principle, let's let's trust it. You've seen it. When you make people feel good about themselves and be able to handle their trials, their issues, they'll help you handle yours. It's reciprocity. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143. 